Good morning, everybody. My name's Steve Pruitt, and uh, I've been here for maybe about a year. Uh, usually my wife, Sue, is with me, but uh, she's got the grandkids today. Some of you may know my son, Mark, who helps with the worship from time to time, and my son, Jeff, who was here on Father's Day and brought the message on Father's Day. also have another son, which I didn't mention. He, we don't hide him, but he's a missionary. Yes, <laughs> we bring him out once in a while. No, he's a missionary in the Philippines, a helicopter pilot servicing missionaries who are reaching primitive tribal people, and uh, we miss him a lot. So, Just a little bit about us. My wife and I were missionaries in the Philippines for several years, working with a primitive tribe of spear chuckers, hunter-gatherer guys who were nomadic. They would move several times a year. And so in the course of our missionary endeavor, we built three houses, four houses maybe even, because one of them rotted and we had to build it again, and uh, three jungle airstrips where you have to carve it out of the side of a mountain kind of a thing. It was quite the adventure. When that work was put on pause in 1988, we moved to Santa Maria and started a church here. Uh, We started with a Bible study in our house, and it eventually grew mostly by word of mouth into what was known as the Evangelical Free Church of Santa Maria, and it eventually became known as the Harbor. I served there as pastor for 26 years, and then just recently, about four years ago, when I was 27, I retired from there, and uh, I wanted to get out before I was drooling on the pulpit and everybody else thought I should get out. But No, I was actually, I I don't know what I was, 61 or 2, I suppose. But anyway... um, I still really enjoy sharing God's word, and I just counted a privilege to be able to do that with you this morning. I'm still growing in my walk and my abilities, and I hope you are as well. To follow along with me, it might be helpful for you to have the notes, which are at the front tables and the back tables, or if you have the version app, you probably already know how to get on and, and follow along there. That might be helpful. And I really don't mind if you just get up and get something. It's going to be fine. I will totally ignore you. Today, I'm continuing our series in the book of Proverbs, and I have the topic of contentment to share with you. Um, Throughout the series, we have seen how God's wisdom counters our culture's wisdom, the things that... He does, his his thoughts are not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways and a lot of times what he says counters the culture in which we live. Proverbs helps us to see things the way that God sees them and not the way the world generally does. There's some crossover, sure, but um, so often they are at odds with one another. And today... I want to look at Proverbs and what it has to say about contentment and also pull in some other things from other places in the Bible. So we get a kind of an overview of what God has to say. To be content means to be satisfied and at peace. There's a kind of a restfulness to it. Webster's calls it a state of 
happiness and satisfaction. But I thought that would be like the lamest title for a sermon. So uh, I've, I didn't do that. So the title of this message is one word, enough. Because I think that actually captures the idea of contentment. The word enough, the longer I've looked at it as I've been studying it, the weirder it looks. Because it ends with an F sound, but it's spelled G-H. So it should be eno or enow or en- I don't know. But anyway, um, it's a, just one of those deep mysteries that I wasn't able to solve. But um, I still think it captures what I want to do today. I want to focus on what is behind that word, the idea of what we have being enough. Because that's really where the Bible lands us when we explore what it has to say about contentment. It brings us to the place where we say, I have enough or it is enough. In our fallen world, we are programmed to think that it is never enough. We're taught to be dissatisfied with anything that we have, whether it's the person we're with or a place or a position or a possession. Whatever it is that you have, it's not enough and you need more. It really has nothing to do with being American or Western or white or black or Asian or green or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just a part of our fallen human nature to be discontent. It also doesn't matter how much you have. A lot of us are under the misguided uh, idea that if I just had this much, <laughs> I'd be a happy camper. It doesn't really work that way. We worked with some of the poorest people on the planet who most of them could carry all of their possessions in their little rattan backpack through the jungle as they moved several times a year. They had almost nothing. And one of their highest ideals was that you be generous with people. And if they ask you for something, you just give it to them. But one of their biggest hang-ups was coveting other people's stuff. I could come up to you and say, I like that shirt. Give it to me. And if you were a good Batak, you would give it to me. I asked the chief once, what would it take for me to be a good Batak? Because I was trying to elicit what was valuable to them. And he said, Mr., I don't think you could do it. Because anything somebody asks you for, you have to give it to them. And I said, you know, you're right. I couldn't be a good Batak because no way am I going to do that. But... So even the poorest people have that. Even the richest people. John D. Rockefeller was uh, at one point the world's richest man. He was the first billionaire. And he's still, since he was rich back then in the 1900s, a billionaire then, he's still considered to be probably the richest guy ever. But one day a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? And he looked at him and said, "Mm, just a little bit more. And so it's, it's really nothing new and it's, it's brought even way back in the garden in that pristine environment where the first man and woman had this great garden. God had given them uh, the privilege of eating from every single tree or plant in the garden that was good for them and he only gave them one little prohibition to not eat from the one thing that wasn't good for them. Well, when the temptation came, the woman Uh, all of a sudden thought that God's provision for her was not enough 
and she focused on the one thing that she didn't have instead of all that God had done for her. And it wasn't very long before she was reaching for the fruit. And the rest is history. She sinned against God and we are suffering the consequences of that even to this day. Today, advertisers play on that same exact weakness that they know we have. They tap into our discontentment or our insecurity or our envy, and they promise that things will be better if we'll just buy or subscribe to whatever it is that they're promoting. They say, you will be in a better place. You will be in a better mood. You will be a better person. You'll be more macho. You'll be more feminine. You'll be more something other than what you are. And so we take the bait, and it isn't very long before we have so much stuff that we can't even park our cars in the garage, and we buy, uh, some of us have to buy a storage area to keep all of the cool stuff we don't need. We buy into that all of the time. Well, the Bible encourages us not to get sucked into that vortex of discontent and envy. It teaches us to say, hmm, no, this is enough. It's enough. And it does it in several ways. It does it through proverbial statements about contentment. It does it through testimonies of people who have wrestled with this and maybe come out on top. It also teaches us through direct commands to be content. And it even teaches us about contentment through a kind of a sample prayer that I want to make sure we get to. So this morning, I'm just going to give you a taste of all of this stuff in hopes that you'll want to explore the subject because the Bible is very rich on the subject of being content. We're going to start with the proverbial statements this morning, and the first one is taught in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. It says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I love that. When what you have is not enough for you, and you envy what other people have, that kind of unrest not only messes with your head and makes you unhappy, it also begins to wrestle with your body. It begins to affect your health. It is destructive. On the other hand, when your heart is at peace, it says it's constructive. It gives life to the body. Another proverbial statement that's important is in Proverbs 19.23. It says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. That's beautiful. There's something here about our relationship to God that is at least one of the main keys to contentment. It talks about the fear of the Lord leads to life. And that's not fear as in abject terror, run and hide kind of fear, but it's more like the fear that... Aaron talked about several weeks ago when he was in Proverbs teaching about fear. It's that healthy um, respect for who God is and all that he's done for us. It's the acknowledgement that our lives are really in his hands and that his hands are strong and capable of taking care of us. And uh, I think that's the fear of the Lord for the believer. It's a walk with him as if he really is who he says he is and we respect him. 
for that and walk with him in light of that. And the writer here is saying that that kind of walk with God actually does three things. One, it brings life. It nourishes you in ways that nothing else can. Two, it brings contentment, that rest. And three, it says that you're untouched by trouble. Now, just a caution here. When it says untouched by trouble, it can't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. No way. I mean, there are times when you're right in the middle of like really nailing it as far as trusting the Lord and something backfires big time. And it's not because you weren't trusting him. It's just because life happened to you. It just does. Um, I like to think of this when it says untouched by trouble as being unmoved when hard times come. Because your foundation is so strong and your roots go so deep into who God is and how much he cares for you and how much he's in control, troubled times don't shake you off your game. I think that's really more what it's talking about. It's not a promise that if I walk with God, only good things will happen to me. Like that's really going to happen. But I mean, any of you ever had that where your whole life is just, yeah, doesn't happen. Anyway, sometimes bad things happen just because we're in a fallen world. Another proverbial statement that is on the topic of contentment is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That is a bit of a proverb. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Doesn't that sound a lot like what you read in Proverbs, those little snippets of life principles? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, I like to think of it as exactly the opposite of godlessness. Not so much about how holy you are, although that is an impact, but it is when you are godless, you are living as though God doesn't exist. You are God-less in your life. Or as though maybe he has no impact on your life. Godliness is the direct opposite of that. It's living as if there really is an all-powerful, loving God on the throne who cares about you and cares for you. That is godliness. It is walking as if God is really relevant and actually there. It's kind of like uh, one author talked about practicing the presence of God in your life. And when we are content to have the God of the universe in our lives, that, Paul says here, is a better gain than any other, better than riches or status or whatever you can think of. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And in verse 7, Paul gives a pretty good reason why we should be content with what we have. He says, for we brought nothing into this world and we will bring nothing out. Death is the greatest leveler of all. None of your physical possessions are going to make it through the portal of death. Not even, I think, your gold fillings are going to go with you. They're going to be dropped right there as before you enter the, the presence of God. 
Only you make it through and your godly character, those traits that will carry on in eternity and end up glorifying God in even better ways all the way through eternity. But none of the stuff goes through. The uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan wrote a song, Willie the Wimp and His Cadillac Coffin. And they buried him. you got to look it up. It's, it's a crack up. And find the lyrics as you can, because sometimes he's riffing so heavy that you can't always get all the lyrics out of him. But it's so cool. Willie the Wimp is this guy who's just he got buried in this beautiful Cadillac coffin, wearing a really nice suit and dollar bills stuffed in his hand and all of that. And it's just like, really? You really think that that's going to go with you as you go? And the song resolves that. So check that out. As you can. But anyway, um, only you make it through the portal of death. And so that's a good reason to be content with what you have. All this stuff's going to burn anyway. It's not going with me. So I ought to be focusing on things that are, like my walk with God, my character, and those that I can bring with me, right? Okay. So anyway, that's a few of the proverbial statements that show the way that contentment comes and actually the way that it affects you. But the Bible also teaches contentment through the testimonies of some people who have kind of walked the path of having to learn it. And um, one example is by a worship leader named Asaf who wrote a personal testimony about how this has worked out for him. It's in Psalm 73, if you want to turn there or follow on the screen or um, whatever. um, Here in Psalm 73, he's testifying to a time when he almost turned his back on God because he was uh, comparing the prosperity of the wicked to his own situation. And uh, verse 1 Begins, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Excuse me. He says, I know in my heart that God is good to his followers. Good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But I have to tell you that there have been times, he says, when I've taken a look at the lives of the wicked and I've wondered why God lets them have it so good. Why doesn't he just snuff them out? Now, this was probably written like almost 3,000 years ago. But doesn't it sound a lot like sometimes we think about, man... I studied my little tail off for that test and I know so-and-so didn't study at all and they got a better grade than I did. Or I have worked my fingers to the bone at this job and then so-and-so, that low life, gets promoted. What's with that? Is there no justice? And it's kind of that same thing where you are looking at who deserves what. And that's what Asaf was doing here. It can really mess with your head and bug you. In verses 4 to 12, he talks about what he saw when he looked at the wicked. These are the things. This was the data he was going by. He says, they never seem to have any problems. They seem so strong and so healthy, and they like to flaunt it and rub it in. And they have it so good, he said, they get all proud and mean and even smug about it. You would think that God would bring shame on those kinds of people, but for some reason, he's kind of slow to do that. What's with that, God? Instead, he says, these people, 
increase in wickedness and arrogance and wealth, and the world flocks to them and drinks them in. The world makes them heroes because they seem so successful. that sound a little familiar? Some of the people that get exalted in our society now, if you really look at their lives, you think, wait a second, maybe there is no justice. Verses 13 to 14 tell us what he felt about it, what this looking at this thing did to him. Verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. He says, here I am. I'm trying to do the right thing. And I don't get blessing. Instead, I get challenges and backfires all the time. God lets them get away with murder and I get the hard life. In verse 16, he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. It really bothered him. It started to consume him. This is a practical example of what it means that envy can rot your bones. It started taking its toll on him. But in verse 17, we see something happened. He says, all of this was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. This is where we see his aha moment where as soon as he took his eyes off of other people, off of the wicked and what they were getting, and he put his eyes on the Lord, it says, I entered the sanctuary of God. I went in and I I started focusing on God. He saw the big picture. The first thing he saw was the true position of the righteous. I mean, excuse me, the wicked. Verses 18 to 20, he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Just like you look at your dream once you're awake and realize it was really nothing, that's what it says God is going to do. He's going to despise them. You're going to think of them so small as if they were just like a dream that you already had and they are gone. Even though they might be living high and mighty right now, they're on a slippery slope, he says. And they could fall to their destruction at any moment. And he saw that they eventually will be swept away. And God was going to get rid of them forever. And when he set his eyes on the Lord, he also saw some things about the righteous. Check this out, verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. He says, those guys are on a slippery slope, but I have your strong hand gripping my right hand, and your counsel guiding me, showing me where to step. So much for the slippery slope. I've got you watching over me. And when all this is over, I get to go not to destruction, but to glory. Isn't that something maybe to be content about? Wow, this is what I get compared to what they get. Verses 25 and 26, you have his conclusions about this after he saw this. Here's his his conclusion. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When he says, whom have I in heaven for you? He's not saying, oh, those guys get all that and I'm stuck with you. That's all I get is you. That's not it at all. He's saying, I have the best. I have none other than the creator of the universe. This is my possession. He says, being with you, I desire nothing on earth. Nothing compares. As we look to God as provider and guide and we stay close and we we walk with him, he satisfies our deepest longings so that we have no need to covet people or possessions or positions anywhere. Remember the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what happens when we focus on Him and what we have in Him. This other stuff doesn't matter. Notice he says this. He says, The Lord is, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is interesting because This guy, Asaf, was a Levite, and the Levites didn't get a land inheritance. When the promised land was meted out to the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi didn't get their own. Their portion was the tabernacle. They got to represent God to people and people to God. And here, Asaf is saying, these guys get all of this stuff, but you are my portion forever. Their stuff's temporary. It's going to burn. I get you. My portion is you forever. They get the earthly goods. I get the God who will never let me go. Others get the nice houses, the cush jobs, and easy life, but I get to experience what it is to walk daily with the God of the universe who spoke the planets into existence. I get to walk with that guy. How can I even compare it to stuff that perishes? Their portion lasts a few years, when it, then it's gone. Mine lasts forever. No contest. I get the better deal. That's a soft conclusion, and it ought to be ours as well as we really look at the big picture. Another personal testimony comes from King David. It's in Psalm 23, and it is super familiar and super short. David says, and you can just kind of Say it along with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You get the connection between the two? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I loved the way that the Living Bible said that years ago. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. And that's really what David is saying here. He lists then, once he says, I shall not want, he lists all the things that the Lord... uh, gives him the benefits of having the Lord as his shepherd are the Lord gives him rest and water, leads me beside still waters, strength and guidance, he restores my soul. The Lord gives him a feast even in the worst of times. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The Lord gives him goodness and mercy and not just for the short term, but surely goodness and mercy will follow me. What? all the days of my life. And then finally he says, the Lord's going to give him a place in heaven forever. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that something? 
How can temporary, perishable gains even compete with that? That's David's conclusion. So the personal testimonies of both of these guys, Asaph and David, say that if you have the Lord, you have everything you need. It is enough to have him. That is a good reason for contentment. In the Bible, this idea of contentment is also taught through direct commands. And one sample of a direct command is in Exodus chapter 20, where God gave the law to Israel. The 10th commandment reads, Exodus twenty seventeen: you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In case you were looking for a loophole, nah, that last one, nor anything, the kind of gotcha. Okay, so admittedly, it doesn't say be content. It doesn't say it. But what it does is it forbids the opposite, that covetousness, that envy, which is wanting what God has given to somebody else. And uh, it forbids it. Now, in the New Testament, more direct command. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Can't get much more direct than that because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That is a direct command to believers. And notice it's not be content when you have enough. It's be content with what you have already. That's different. Consider what you have as enough. And just take note, the reason to be content here is because God is with us forever. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We will always have him, and he is enough. That's the reason to be content with such things as you have. Another way, moving along, that um, probably has had the most impact on me through the years uh, personally in the area of contentment is Proverbs 30, written by a man named Agur. He says this as he prays. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's what Agur prayed for. Lord, teach me to be a person of integrity, falsehood and lies. Keep those far from me. Teach me to be honest. Give me just enough. Here's the key. Give me just enough to keep my spiritual edge with you at the center. If God gives him too little, he knows that he could be tempted to steal or do dishonest things to get what he wants. And if God gives him too much, he would know that he would lose his sense of dependence on him and act as if God didn't even matter to him. Lord, give me just enough, he says, to keep you at the center of my life. Give me enough to keep my spiritual edge. 
You know how much that is, Lord, and I want to trust you with that and be content. I remember way back in the 80s, I made a list of 10 life goals, things I wanted to accomplish. And one of them was to be independent financially so as to um, be able to minister without pay and provide for Sue in later years. And noble thing, sure, but God wasn't doing that for me. And I started thinking all these other ones just made total sense. But that one, I always had this little check in my heart. What if God doesn't want me to be financially independent? Because he knows that as soon as I am, I'm going to be independent and not have to get up in the morning and say, Lord, please provide for this rent. Lord, please, you know, bring in enough to supply for my family. I would lose that spiritual edge that is trusting God and watching him fulfill the requests in my prayers and so I started thinking well maybe that's not what God wants for me that's a real high ideal in American society our culture says that's the ultimate is for you to be financially independent but that may not be your sweet spot your sweet spot might be dependence on that next paycheck having to pray that God will provide and whatever it takes we need to be willing to say Lord give me just enough so that I can keep my spiritual edge. That's a hard thing, but it makes total sense. And that's what Agur prayed for. I think that's what we can pray. Lord, just give me enough to keep you at the center of my life. Otherwise, I might do some dumb stuff or some illegal stuff to try to provide. And uh, I know myself. I know I can twist things. And I don't know how you want to pray that. But anyway, those are just a few examples of how... God teaches the ways that he teaches us about contentment and all of them, in case you didn't notice, point to our relationship with the Lord as the source and basis of our contentment. We may not get the best financial portfolio that's out there or the best job or even the best family or friends or whatever, but what we do get as believers so far outweighs those that it gives us the grace to be content with the things that we do have. Here are just a few highlights to remind you of what we have in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things, graciously give us all things? He says in Ephesians 1, 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. He doesn't hold anything Back. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.3 that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Amazing what we have. We can be content first and foremost because we've been given the very best already. We already have the best. And we have a promise that since God has given us his best, that he's also going to give us everything else that is good for us. He has this, and we can trust him with it. He won't hold back anything else he thinks is good for us. If you find yourself griping about what you don't have, you're, you're just 
dissatisfied very often, and it happens regularly. It might be helpful for you to start making a list of the riches that you do have in Christ. How about a couple suggestions, a few. Forgiveness for your many sins that you didn't deserve to be forgiven for. A place in God's family, even though you're a sinner. A personal good shepherd watching over you. Wow. An opportunity to be God's ambassador, his representative here in the world. The Holy Spirit to empower you and guide you and comfort you every single day. And then ultimately, an inheritance in heaven that Peter says can never perish, spoil, or even fade away and that it is kept in heaven for you. How about that as your list of when I'm dissatisfied? How about if I think about the stuff I do have? May God bring us all to the place where we know beyond a doubt that his work for us is enough for our salvation and that his provisions for us are enough for our lives. When we have him, it is enough. He is enough. In just a few minutes here, we're going to share communion together and we can have the band come on up to uh, get ready to lead us in worship again. But one of the reasons that we celebrate communion is to get ourselves back to our roots and to remind ourselves of the sufficiency of our Savior, that his body was given for us He actually stepped between us and the wrath of God. And you want my my security blanket? Oh, my goodness. Thanks, Jason. You're just doing your job. It's all right. The bread representing his body, which was given for us, placed between us and the wrath of God that we deserved. Communion reminds us of that as we eat the bread and we say, that was for me that he died. The juice, the wine reminds us of his blood that was shed, the value of what he provided. We were redeemed, Peter says, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb that was without spot or blemish or any such thing. We are reminded when we share communion that he is enough and his work is is enough and all we do is rest in that let that fill your heart as you come up and share communion this morning just so glad to to have an opportunity to share with you would you pray with me father i thank you for this great idea of being content and yet i still lord have to watch myself all the time with it because I get my eyes and my heart set on things. I look at my Amazon wish list and the things that aren't fulfilled on that and I just kind of have this sense of got to work toward it. I just pray that you'll help me to first and foremost be content because I already have the best. Teach me, Lord, and teach us all to understand that it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I pray this in his name. Amen.